Welcome to Chats with Susan Burrell. And that's me. I help strong, capable women who have pockets of self-doubt access their inner wisdom and clarify their own truth. Chats with Susan Burrell is where we have rich conversations about empowerment, radiating your brilliance out into the world, and loving yourself more than you ever have before. And who doesn't want that? So let's get started. So today, uh, I get I, I just love my job, everybody. I just love my job. And today, I am deeply honored to have an amazing, award-winning war correspondent and journalist um, who has traveled all over the world and has written a book now called Uprising, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter. And I, so I want to welcome Sally Armstrong. Sally, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Susan. I'm delighted to be with you. I, and I got to say, before we've even started the conversation, I have chills. I, I know that the profound work <laughs> that you've done over the last 24 years as a journalist that's shown up in this amazing book, Uprising, is going to affect change just from our listeners hearing our conversation today. I know it. Good news. Good news. So what I want to do, Sally, before we jump into the book, um, I want to read something uh, from your book uh, that's early on in the book, just to set the tone of what we're talking about. So um, if you'll allow me, once in a very long while, maybe a lifetime, you get to tell a story about how lives can be altered. The process of change is usually daring, certainly time-consuming, invariably costly, and occasionally heartbreaking, but eventually an exercise so rewarding that it becomes the stuff of legends. Change is fueled by anger and disappointment as well as by inspiration and patience. What is happening today is the culmination of all the waves of women's efforts that went before. Once change like this begins in earnest, once it has lifted off, the momentum picks up and it becomes unstoppable. I love that, Sally. Thanks. Yeah. So your book Uprising is about all the different stories you covered over your years as a journalist. And it sat and most of them or a lot of them were all about women all over the world from Afghanistan, Egypt, um, in Africa and the United Congo. States, right? The Congo and Canada. Um, and the U.S. And the U.S. And and what you've put down in this book is uh, life changing just to read it. And I appreciate that I didn't have to go read and research and do all read all the other stuff. It's all in one place so I could get informed immediately. Oh, Susan, I'm delighted to hear you say that. You know, I am a journalist. I work in zones of conflict. And my beat for 25 years has been to find out what happens to women and girls. And believe you me, I haven't had a good news story to tell. But about four years ago, I started to feel like the earth was shifting under the status of women and girls. And at first, I, you know, Susan, you, you, you hope and you hope, and I thought, maybe this is wishful thinking on my part. But I did the research. I found out I was right, and I wanted to be the first one to get this into a book. Because look at the decades and decades we've worked for this change. We've marched and petitioned and begged and changed constitutions and changed politicians. And now, what do we find out? The women are doing it for themselves, and they're doing it all over the world. So all those stories I told over all those years, I went back, and I found those women, 
And I said, so what's happening now? And that's the story in the book. Yeah, and I have chills as you're as you're saying that, <laughs> Sally, because I I grew up. I was in high school and college during the seventies. In the you know the fir- not the first, but another iteration of the women's movement. Right. And uh, in fact, my college was a small liberal arts college, and they the year I was there, the four years I was there, they just started a women's study uh, course, and there was only one co- one class offered, and it, women history and and I took it, and so some of the people that you quoted, um, Betty Friedan, you know, a bunch of people were people I had studied, and um, and I felt at that time, and this was twenty plus something years ago, mm-hmm, <laughs> that there wasn't there wasn't enough information about this other half of society that you know it's fifty percent of the world are women, and nobody was telling the women's story the her story, as a lot of people like to say. And that's what you've done. And and what and I love the way you broke down the book because you're talking, you talk about, um, well, first of all, and I think this is what we got to address at the top here, is the violence that is perpetrated, per- 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 now I'm losing my words. Perpetrated. Thank you, <laughs> against women all over the world and the uh, oppression and the suppression of women and their voices and, and their human rights. Do you know that the cost of violence against women in Canada alone, and we're a pretty small place compared to your place, in Canada alone, it is $7 billion a year. Oh, my gosh. Think of what we could do with $7 billion. Think of that, and everything is usually times 10 for the U.S. Right. I mean, it is, so, it is so ridiculous that we have allowed this to go on, and it really didn't move until economists, like Jeffrey Sachs, the American Jeffrey Sachs said, the status of women in the economy are directly related. Where one's flourishing, so is the other. Where one's in the ditch, so is the other. Well, Susan, you and I knew that decades ago. Some of your listeners maybe only knew it for a decade, but we all knew it to be true. But it, when Jeffrey Sachs said it, it got traction. And now, even even people who who felt they they were serving their culture by oppressing women, they want to make money too. And they're finding out that the economy changes. Poverty goes down. Conflict decreases. I mean, you can't argue with this kind of thing. But it didn't happen until the women started making it happen themselves. Uh, You know, and I'm so glad you brought this up first. Because um, in the book, you mentioned uh, Dr. Muhammad Yunus, who who had started a bank about micro-lending to women in small villages so that they could improve their status, improve their, um, just earn money, period, so that their kids could have a better life. And and his inspiration, if you will, or his guidance was to give the money to the women because the men will gamble it or drink it away. Well, you know, that that is a heck of a story because Muhammad Yunus was a very... Um, respected banker in Bangladesh, and he mm-hmm. walked to work every day, and he went by these women who were making these little baskets and stools and trays. They were weaving um, the, these things together. So you know how you do when you go to work. You, you start saying hello to the person at the corner and the person in the shop. So he would say hello to them. One day he stopped to talk to them. He found out that what the guy was charging them for the weaving material was absolutely extortionary. Wow. And not only that, Guess who got to sell the baskets and the trays and the stools? Same guy. So Mohammed Yunus went, and these are very, very poor women. 
he went to his bank where he was an executive, and he said, let's loan them the money. Let's cut out this guy who's selling them the material for 10 times what is even fair. But he'd still make a profit at 10 times less. And you know what the bank said to him? Absolutely not. We would never loan to poor people. So he ended up leaving the bank, and he started what's called the Grameen Bank. And he loaned to both men and women, but as you wisely said, he soon found out that the women not only repay the money on time, they use the money to get their kids to school to better their their lifestyle, to put better food on the table. So he became the guy who only loaned to women. And you know, I was sent over there to do a story on him once. So I did a story on one group of women he'd loaned money to. The women built a road. They built 90 kilometers of road from their village to the city so they could get their goods to the market. But by the time I got there, the road was finished, of course. But by now, they're running rickshaws up and down the road as taxis. They're, They're running also in the rickshaw. They're running cell phones. Drive into your hut, and you can use a cell phone to call your aunt in America. They made commerce, and that's what it's about. You have to make the world go round with commerce. And, and it was so clever of him. But you know, the sad thing is, the president of Bangladesh saw him. He, he won the Nobel Prize. Yes, I and, remember. And saw him and became very jealous of him and tried to arrest him on the charge of working over the age of 70. I mean, oh. it's unbelievable, isn't oh. it? But the world is different today. The world called her on it and said, how dare you? And, and then should take her own heat. So it is a marvelous story about Muhammad Yunus. Yeah, and in in your book as well, you also quoted um, a speech that Hillary Clinton gave um, at the Pacific Asian Pacific Economic uh, Cooperation, and I would like to read that on air because I think it's timely <laughs> and <laughs> profound. Say. And this was in September of two thousand eleven, um, and Hillary Clinton said, "To achieve the economic expansion we all seek, we need to unlock." a vital source of source of growth that can power our econo- economies in the decades to come and that vital source of growth is women with economic models straining in every corner of the world none of us can afford to perpetuate the barriers facing women in the workforce by increasing women's participation in the economy and enhancing their efficiency and productivity we can bring a dramatic dramatic impact on the competitiveness and growth of our economies Because when everyone has a chance to participate in the economic life of a nation, we can all be richer. Well, you know, I have to say, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't live in America, therefore I don't, I don't get involved in your politics. But I have to say Hillary Clinton has done as much, if not more, for the status of women around the world than anybody else. Another great story she was telling when I was writing this book was she said there's 39 civil wars going on in the world today. 31 of them are old wars. They keep restarting. Why do they restart? And I know that to be true, Susan, because I cover those wars. And she said they keep restarting because they end with ceasefires of exhaustion rather than ceasefires that deal with what was wrong in the first place. And she goes on to say the same three things are wrong in every civil war, and they are poverty, lack of education, and the status of women. Mm. Nobody, nobody, nobody talked that way before. And again, when someone of her stature says it, it gets traction. And now, and it's so true. All the studies have been done. We know it to be true. 
the economy will improve, et cetera, et cetera. But she also gave another incredible example, and that is that in the rural world, the majority of farmers in Asia, Africa, et cetera, are women. And those women farm with tools that are not as good as the men's tools. They farm with seeds that are less productive than the seeds the men use, and they farm with less fertilizer. And she found a study and announced it that said, if these women had the same tools, the same seeds, the same fertilizer as the men, they could feed 150 million more people. Wow. Can't argue with this stuff, you know? Wow. Yeah, amazing. And that's powerful. So, Sally, let's jump into this, the conversation about um, the, the violence that's occurring all over the world. It doesn't matter what country we live in. There is uh, violence being uh, perpetuated against women happening. Uh, and you have, during the course of your journalistic career, had some amazing uh, confrontations and conversations with women who were victims of multiple different kinds of horrific things that nobody nobody even wants to talk about or think about. That's true. That's true. But you know, the difference now, Susan, is we are talking about it. Everybody knows if you can't talk about it, you can't change it. And there has always been a taboo on speaking out about sexual assault. We, we always think somehow people are going to think we're lesser, we're not as good, we asked for it, we deserve it, but we don't speak. That has changed. The taboo has been busted, and people are now talking, and it's having incredible results. I'll tell you one story. Um, it's, it's known as the 160 girls story now. I followed it for three years in Kenya. 160 little girls between the ages of three and 17 sued their government in Kenya for failing to protect them from being raped. Oh my I mean, this gosh. is unheard of. Who ever heard of such a thing happening? No. Well, I, I followed them for three years. These were incredible kids. Of course they were victims, but they were very, very empowered by knowing they were taking on what their older sisters couldn't take on, their mothers couldn't take on, their aunties couldn't, their grandmothers couldn't, because there was this, this feeling that, well, you know, you're only a girl. You're only a woman. What, what do you expect? And these kids sued. And Susan, they won. And when they won it, they won it for 10 million girls. And the story is now having this incredible wave of change to retrain the judiciary, to force um, villages to talk. But the, the reason I tell you that quite long story is the difference today. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. I find this the most fascinating theory today, that we always depended on political will and public will. The political will being, you know, when the politician signs the paper and says, that's that, we're not doing this anymore, or we're putting in the stop sign, or, you know, we're changing the water level. And the public will is when you and I marched and signed petitions and, and did all those things to force the politician to make change. Well, today, there's a new will out there. I, I spoke at the United Nations on um, International Women's Day, and this was the speech I was making there. The new will is personal will. For example, that story I just told you about 160 girls. You know how that started? It started at a village meeting when a 12-year-old girl called Millie stood up and she said, I want to go to school, but I can't go to school because I'm pregnant. 
and oh. I'm pregnant because that man sitting over there, and she pointed at him, raped me. I mean, this is colossal, and this is personal will, and it's happening elsewhere. And what personal will means is I want this to happen. And that's what we're hearing the world over today. We're hearing it in Saudi Arabia. We're hearing it in Pakistan. We're hearing it in Canada. We're hearing it in the U.S. I want this to happen. And personal will is really driving both public and political will. I, and I love that. I, I, I love that because uh, I, in my personal life, have always felt that it's, it's about me and not that I would I have faced anything as some of these women around the world have, but it's about me taking self-responsibility for my life. Yeah. And the only person yeah. that can stand up for me is me. Well, look at look at the story of Malala Yousafzai, the 15-year-old who was shot by the stupid, cowardly Ugh. Taliban in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. Why? Because she wanted to go to school. This was personal will. She didn't become the world's daughter, as she has, because some politician in the Swat Valley said, now girls are going to go to school. She didn't become the world's daughter because there was some petition by the right. people in the Swat Valley. She became the world's daughter because she said, damn the torpedoes, I'm going to school. They shot her in the head and she said, guess what, I'm better now and I'm going to school. And she started a movement. And it, it, took, it got traction. You know what? That's why I wrote the book. Because that is what's happening today. I mean, there's been a bazillion Malalas over the years. But today, we heard her. And we made her the world's daughter. We gave her the Nobel Prize because it's, we, we see things through a different lens today. One of the things I talk about often on Living Your Inspired Life is that the, the paradigm, the perspective has shifted dramatically. And the old way of, quote unquote, doing business no longer works. In fact, it, it, it's a completely done deal. We're just at the effect of the final dredges of all of that millennia long uh, garbage, because I can't use worse words on air, <laughs> but uh, and and that's also what you talk about here is you 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 open up the idea of the of the ancient wisdoms, uh, the world religions that are based their um, oppression and suppression and, and and eradication in some cases of women on ancient texts that make it okay. And and your argument in uprising uh, was. Awesome for me to to read because about the um, the Quran, because the Quran, which a lot of Americans hopefully have studied now since it's since nine eleven, have looked at the Quran to see really what it says and and realize that there's fundamentalist extremists out there that are just uh, making wack- it up. Yeah, wackadoos. Yeah. <laughs> But you, you address that in your book. So would you share a little bit about what you uncovered with the Quran and how it has been warped? Well, you know, I started covering Afghanistan as soon as the Taliban took over. Well, they took over in September. I didn't get there till March. It was hard. I, you know, they wouldn't let anyone through. I had to ultimately do what we call going through a hole in the border. But I couldn't believe my eyes. Here these people had forbidden women from going to work. There's no place in the Quran that says a woman can't go to work. They forbid girls from going to school for five years. There's no place in the Quran that says that. Now, to be fair, Susan, every single religious text has yes. has passages in it that oppress women. Yes. But most religions have gone through something of a, a reformation, and, and they see that as an interpretation of the time, and as much as we probably thought it was wrong at that time, too, um, we, don't, we don't see it that way today. 
but the the Quran is a, a, a it, Islam is a twenty four hour seven day a week religion. It's a lifestyle religion. It's not a matter of go to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. But here's what happens: the Quran is written in Arabic, and and in Afghanistan, which we were talking about, they don't speak Arabic in Afghanistan. They speak Farsi. They speak Dari. They don't speak Arabic. So they and furthermore, eighty five percent of the place is illiterate. So you have these illiterate imams interpreting a book they cannot read wow. and telling people how they're to live their lives, how they're to treat their girls, sell their daughters, force kids into early marriages. It's a bunch of baloney. <clears throat> but until recently, quite recently, all of us looked on these things because, you know, we're, we're very proud of multiculturalism. We don't want to step on anybody's toes. We all looked at this and we said, well, you know, it's none of our business. It's that's the way they do things. And, and people said, well, this is cultural. What happened to the women of Afghanistan was not cultural. It was criminal. And nobody wanted to say it. Now everybody's saying it. And, and the same thing, <clears throat> excuse me, I dare say, to the women of Pakistan, to uh, women in certain African countries, and even in this country, mm-hmm. when, when you get away with beating up your wife. So, mm-hmm. so we have to identify this is not cultural, this is criminal, and it's time we talked about it. Well, and I appreciate um, the conversation too, Sally, because there, uh, because when people rely on ancient scripture, whatever it is, Christian, Judaic, um, the Quran, even some other scriptures, right? Uh, classical Greek philosophies, there are some kind of misogynistic <laughs> tones. When they rely on that to inform them, and instead of really looking at where they are in this present moment, in this time frame, you know, bringing old garbage constantly in to make it, uh, to force people to live their lives a certain way. Exactly. Is, exactly. Is you know, wrong. people say, <clears throat> people say to me, well, why do men oppress women? You know what the answer is? Because they can. Mm. Who's stopping them? But now people are, t- you know, I'll tell you another story. I was in, um, in Afghanistan doing a, a documentary on a group of young women called Young Women for Change. Well, imagine my surprise when I got to their meeting place and found out half were young men. And I said, well, this is amazing. What are you guys doing here? Well, they felt the same way as the girls, so they were going to march with them. But the same thing had happened to me in Cairo when I did a story on the women of the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Young Women's Organization, the Nazra Center for Feminist Studies, what a surprise, half were young men. But you know, Susan, I asked the same question in Cairo, Egypt, as I did in Kabul, Afghanistan. I said, what's with the guys? We didn't invite the guys to march with us in the 70s and the 80s. No. And they both had the same answer. They both said, we will never get to the finish line unless we walk together. Oh, and truer that. words could not be spoken for, for our countries. In North America... The men have to decide to walk with the women. It's the men who have to say, what? What did you just say? What did you just do? That could have been my sister, my daughter, my mother. Uh, this is what has to happen. And I think we're close to that. I, I really hope so, because I remember growing up as a young teen and, you know, just walking down the street with, you know, guys hanging out the window and whistles and cat calls. And I, and I remember feeling then, what gives you the right to yeah, violate yeah. my sanctity, yeah. and all I'm doing is walking down the street. Exactly. 
You know, and exactly. I, the, the young men of this country, at least uh, I have a 21 year old son. And so at least his tribe of men that he hangs out with, they're all very uh, aware of and of of equal rights. Doesn't matter if you're gay or a woman or a man or, you know, just human rights are necessary. And then there's a whole nother group of of men the same age who are still being brought up or have that lens on, I would say, of the old paradigm of, I, I talked to one young man after there was a shooting up in Santa Barbara, um, and I was talking to him, he was 21, and and I said, so what is it like for you out in, in the world now? And he said, well, you know, you go to a bar, if somebody roofies a girl, which is that date rape drug, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like no big deal. I said, whoa, whoa. And I had to step back and go, wow, there are still people that are raising their children that it's okay to harm or suppress or we can just slough it off as a joke, didn't really mean it. Well, look what happened just the other day with uh, Chrissy Hines, the the lead singer on The Pretenders. And, And she wrote a book and she was interviewed by The New York Times and she said, I was raped by... Um, the Hell's Angels, but it was my own fault because I was wearing high heels and dressed in... Oh, my goodness. I thought, how can you say that? I mean, kids follow her. People look up to her. People buy her music. They they put, make her an icon. And what she was saying really was wear high-heeled shoes and and you deserve what you get. Yes. That's not the way it, life runs in America. No. You can wear whatever the heck you like. No one's allowed to rape you. No. Well, so nobody it, should be allowed to rape you anywhere. Who says what? Yes. And and it is a cultural, uh, it's culturalized, you know, where people, where women think that they are the ones that caused the problem. And, and it's so indoctrinated into their mindset that they don't even think to ask the question of really who am I kidding yeah <laughs> it happened to me it did I did not cause it to happen exactly well you know people used to say really bizarre things remember people used to say things like battered women ask for it or oh no battered gosh. women like it and raped women ask for it I thought that kind of stuff had gone out with I don't know what went out right <laughs> saddle shoes or something but it, it's still around there. And I think people would sometimes rather uh, blame the victim than take on the task of altering the behavior. And that's just sad. And I have seen that happen numerous times. But, you know, it, having said all of that, all of the research in my book pointed to the fact that things are changing. You know, what, a part that I think would appeal to to your listeners is what Gina Davis is doing, the actor. Yes, tell who, us, tell us. Who, well, you know, I was so lucky. I got to, I was MC of a program that she was a guest speaker at, so I got to introduce her. And we got talking, which is why her whole story is in my book. She told me that after Thelma and Louise and after A League of Our Own, weren't they fabulous movies? Mm-hmm. I just love them. She said after that, people started treating her differently. She walked down the street. And people treated her differently, and she had to stop and ask herself what that was about. And she realized it was about the status of women. So she has opened, on her own, the Gina Davis Institute in Gender and the Media, on Gender in Media. And I really admired her. You know what she said to me? 
she said, I can't go around the world and change the way people treat women. But she said, I can work on my business. And that's what she did. She went into the producers and the directors and the, what do you call those people who pick who's going to, the cast? Casting directors, people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, because, and then she did research, which she paid for. She found out that if 17% of a crowd scene is women, it's considered enough women. If it's more than that, it's considered too many women. Wow. She did the numbers on behind the camera, in front of the camera, and she went to the people and said, why are we doing this? And she told me, she said, 80% of the world's entertainment comes from America. What are we selling? What are we telling people? So I admired her so much because she, as she said, I'm not going around the world changing everybody, but I'm going to work on my business. So she has a program at her institute called See Jane. And the, the slogan is, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think that is brilliant. She's reaching out to young people. She's changing people's minds. And you know what? I think change happens beautifully when you say something to someone and they say, oh, my God, I didn't know that. And that's what her institute is doing. It's giving people that, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that before, because it's something important to know. So, so there's another, I think, example. Look what Eve Ensler is doing. Yes. She got a billion women around the world to stand up and dance in public squares on Valentine's Day to say, stop the violence. I mean, how smart is that? Now that and that just started a couple years ago, right? It did. I think it, I think this is its fourth year. So so just so people know, there 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 were when it first happened, it kind of went viral, right? It did, of course it did. In fact, in my book I tell a story of what happened in Germany. I just wanted to pick one country mm-hmm. and, and see how the the um, the uh, billion women rising went. The whole European Union government or parliament stood up and did it. And, oh my and God, they that's had awesome! All these people racing from after work to join them at the town square. In other words, she struck a note, and that note, I was sure as I was writing the book, was available to be struck. That's why I wrote the book. It's out there. It's changed. People are saying, "What can I do?" And it's happening. Now, are we at the finish line? Absolutely not. Um, do we have a lot of work to do? We certainly do. But, but you know, the earth has shifted under the status of women, for sure. Yeah, and it feels like there's a, there's, well, you said it earlier, and you quoted somebody also about just that it happens in waves. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, so I, I, let me read this quote. It, you quoted June Callwood, um, because this caught my attention, too. The first thing to get out of the way is expectation that virtue always triumphs. In truth, most attempts to confront and defeat misdeeds are only partially successful or else seem to be outright failures. It doesn't matter. Nothing is wasted in the universe. This is really important, people. Even an effort that apparently goes nowhere will influence the future. Though the system looks untouched, it has a fatal crack in it. The next assault or the one after that will bring it down. At the very least, someone somewhere has learned a lesson and will become more thoughtful. Now, this quote to me, Sally, is, is, is absolute truth. And I remember when I was younger going, wow, well, that didn't get very far. Well, really, it's still happening. So, oh, well, I guess that's, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's not worth the effort if, if you constantly are beating your head against a wall and it seems 
it appears that nothing has shifted on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier just to give up, walk away. Well, that, and that's what Hannah Arendt said, isn't it? She mm-hmm. said that evil thrives on apathy and yeah. cannot exist without it. Hence, apathy is evil. And it's true. And it, if you see something wrong and you choose to walk away from it, you're really, you're really casting a note of approval for it. You know, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. And that goes across the board. It's not just about what's happening with women or what's happening with uh, gay and lesbian rights or what's happening with uh, races and other cultures. If, if there is an injustice that you're witnessing, yeah. why not speak out about it or why not walk up to the individual and, and uh, well, confront them in a way that can help them to see what they're doing is not right. There's You wrote about another young woman, um, I believe in Afghanistan, who started doing that, walking on the streets. And if, if a man grabbed her or or made a comment or was inappropriate, she would turn and face that man. It, you know, it's true. And, and it does work. But, you know, this takes awesome moral courage. Mm-hmm. When you know you're right, it's, it's one thing. But to go out there and take action, you know, Sometimes you have to say innocent bystander is an oxymoron. You know, people... <laughs> I love Don't that. you think, really? Yes, really, truly. <laughs> I mean, people who do not um, take on injustice when they see it are, are as I said, giving injustice uh, approval. Um, you know, in the absence of, of protest that you and I are so used to, evil really is nourished and it can flourish. So we know... The nature of goodness bears a very keen relationship to intervention. You know, people who seek to serve their conscience or, or uh, serve their uh, uh, find meaning in their lives. The evil, I don't know. They want to attain the quiet splendor of moral growth. Mm-hmm. They're obliged to participate in your society. Mm-hmm. I agree. I absolutely agree. I'm speaking with Sally Armstrong, the author of an amazing book, you must read it, called Uprising, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Living Your Inspired Life. Hi, this is Susan Burrell from Living Your Inspired Life. I always find it easier and more fun to expand my life by being connected to open-hearted, like-minded people committed to being on the same path I am. If you feel the same way, I suggest you visit a Center for Spiritual Living. There are wonderful communities in Ventura, Ojai, Santa Barbara, Oxnard, Pleasant Valley, Camarillo, and Westlake Village. You'll find terrific people, great information, and more tools to help you live the life you were born to live. So go to CSL.org to find a center near you. That's CSL.org for a center near you. Welcome back to Living Your Inspired Life. I'm Susan Burrell, and I have a a promo I want to pop out to everybody in the local Ventura County area. There is a group, a a female a cappella group called Blessing, and they are going to be performing at the Ventura Center for Spiritual Living, 101 South Laurel Street in Ventura on September 26th at 7 p.m., and they are doing a benefit concert for Sarah House, which is a social model hospice facility that serves Santa Barbara and Ventura County. So I highly recommend you go to Sarah House, S-A-R-A-H, House, S-B.org, 
Find out about the uh, hospice community there and then go and see Blessing and uh, and support them in doing amazing work in the county. So I am having this fun conversation with uh, an international journalist, Sally Armstrong, who's written a book that I am just loving called Uprising. And Sally, when uh, when we came back, I wanted to talk about you were the journalist that broke the story about the rape camps in Bosnia when there was all that ethnic cleansing happening. And I want to talk about ethnic cleansing, too, because you brought that up in the book. But you had this amazing conversation with a woman who was a grandmother at the time. That's right. You know what happened? I was, I was in Sarajevo doing a story on the effect of war on children. And I was leaving the next day. <clears throat> we used to call it maybe airlines, by the way. Maybe it would leave, maybe it wouldn't, maybe the airport was closed, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was being shelled, maybe it wasn't. <clears throat> anyway, I was leaving because I had my story, and I started to hear rumors about rape camps, that they were rounding up the wives, the girlfriends, the daughters, the mothers of the enemy, and putting them in camps and gang-raping them. I could hardly believe my ears. And you know what, Susan? As a journalist, we know... The first casualty of war is usually the truth. Now, people don't lie to you to trick you, but they up the ante because they're afraid you won't believe how bad things really are. Mm. That's my experience mm. over 25 years. But when I heard this, I mean, this is before Rwanda, before Darfur, before all of those Congo stories, I couldn't believe my ears. But all day long, I heard it from more and more credible sources. Now, I was working for a magazine, so I could race this this headline news story to press in about three months. They gathered everything I could, mobile phone numbers, names, anecdotes, everything I could. And when I came home, I gave it to a huge news agency. I said, send a reporter. This is an extraordinary story. And they didn't. And seven weeks later, seven weeks later, no one had done it. I saw a four-line blurb in Newsweek magazine that said they're gang-raping women in the Balkans. So I sat down with my editorial team, and they said, don't you get it? It's women. Nobody cares. Oh, my I gosh. Said, well, we care. And they said, okay, as a team, let's do it. I said, it's going to take us three months to get it to the reader. They said, never mind, we'll do it. I was on a plane two days later. I met this woman. I met lots of women. But I focused my story on this one woman. And I have to tell you, with a level of embarrassment, I won every award imaginable for this story on the backs of those terribly brave women who, well, who dared to talk. Okay, so I'm just going to I'm just going to pat you on the back right now, Sally Armstrong, because I am deeply grateful. I remember when that was when Syria where Bosnia and the ethnic cleansing and and I kept thinking, how does anybody not get that this is World War II again, that this is the Holocaust again? How is anybody just why are we in America standing by and watching this happen instead of going in there and saying you cannot do this? I know the whole time I covered that war, well, the first four years, they kept saying, where are the Americans? Where are the Americans? Yeah, <laughs> sure I enough, once the Americans came in, it stopped. But this woman I followed for years. We stayed in touch for years. But then, you know, as things go on, the war stops, life returned to normal, sort of. Mm. I lost touch with her. And about three months ago, her grandchildren, who are now in their late 20s, found me on Facebook. Isn't that unbelievable? Oh, my gosh. But you should hear, I'm going back, actually, to do a story on them, because it'll be interesting to know what they would have. Their their siege was five years long. The bloodletting was 
just revolting, as it is in Syria, and Syria is now going into the fifth year of its siege. Mm. I would like to know what these kids have to say to the children. Oh, that's wonderful. Because the kids, what they said to me, now, now remember, this is out of a child's eye. What they remember is me coming, and it was always dark. It, there was always no power. There were always guns being fired. There was always terror everywhere. And it wasn't, sometimes they came in the daytime, they were at the front line. But it it wasn't always like that. But that's what the children remember. And I went to them many times afterwards to do follow-up stories. But their memory of how that scarred their childhood and, and how they hung on and who they believed in, I think this is a story to tell. But the other side of the story, when you compare it to Syria, is what did we learn? We didn't learn anything. Once again, what did we learn? How did we let these things get so far out of control before we entered in to fix anything? Anyway, that's the, that was the story of the, the gang raping. Well, and uh, the, the thing that, like you said, the thing that's frightening to me is that what have we really learned? That when these things pop up, it, it, it's, at least in the Western Hemisphere it must be, it, you know, it's a blip on a headline and then it goes away and, and then there's something else that's awful to focus my attention on kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that the people that are living those circumstances, it, it goes away. You're absolutely right. But I can say to you that although you and I see a new headline every day and our attention is focused elsewhere, we do respond. We do show outrage. We write letters to the editor. We speak over the water cooler at the office, and that does make a difference. I think sometimes people feel, who am I? I can't make any change. I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I'm not powerful. And I take this up in my book because really that's not what it takes. What it takes is exactly what I know Americans do and Canadians do. They say, this is not okay with me. You You treat your people like that not okay with me. And we think we can't change it, but indeed our voices are our most powerful weapon. I, I, I am in complete agreement with you. And, when, and one of the things you talk about is this idea of cultural contradictions where we have, <laughs> up until now, uh, look the other way. A lot, of, a lot of different countries look the other way because they don't want to step on people's toes of, well, that's the way the culture is. And in your book, you say there, when you were out in these different um, cultures that you got thrown into your face, this this idea, especially from men, of, well, you don't know our culture. You, you, you can't yeah. ask those questions because you don't know what our culture is all about. I know. Can you imagine? I was the Taliban's worst nightmare. <laughs> I bet you were. You... How dare you talk about I mean, there's people who call me La Talibanista. But they were so cross with me. How dare you write about our women? And you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I've been hanging around here a long time. I have photos. I have quotes. But they got away with it. But you see, now they're not getting away with it. Now we're saying, are you nuts? How dare you do this to your girls? And you know, it's about time we we spoke out to the men of the world who think it's okay to, to make a nine-year-old child marry a 55-year-old man. That is and just it, insanity to me. It's about time we spoke out about the people who think uh, flogging a woman because of the church or the synagogue or the mosque she goes to is, is allowed. It's not. It, it's, you know, I once said to a man, 
over a case of a child who'd been given in BAD, which is B-A-A-D, in Afghanistan. If your tribe has a fight with my tribe and your tribe wins, I have to give you a little girl. And I may have to give you two or three little girls, depending on the size of the harm done. You can just imagine what they do to those little oh, girls. Oh, gosh. So over your radio station, I'm not going to say what they'd done to this particular child who escaped, and I happened to be around when they were talking to her. And I turned to a man from her village, and I said, how can anyone do this to a little girl? And he said to me, I know it's wrong, but it's our way. And I thought, hmm, you know what? We can do business as long as you know it's wrong. We yeah. can start doing business. They know damn well it's wrong. I interviewed the coroner of East Jerusalem once about honor killing. Mm. I said, when a girl comes in here and her family says she fell down the well and died, can you tell if it was honor killing or an accident? He said, absolutely. I said, what do you do? He said, I write um, accident and sign the paper. Oh, my god. I said, gosh. why do you do that? He said, it's our way. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, these are, these are important things that we don't like to talk about these things. We speak behind our hands and... And we say, oh, well, you know, the way they treat their women, da-da-da. It's our business. It's everybody's business. And, and that's what my book is about. It's our business. And these women, like in East Jerusalem, I was interviewing these women, and uh, I was stunned by their stories. And they're so brave, you know. I interviewed um, a gynecologist, and <laughs> her job was to tell people if a girl was still a virgin. Oh, so she whoa. just quickly sewed up their hymens and made sure nobody would know the difference. I mean, you, you've got to be really brave to to alter the status quo. But I can tell you, Susan, they're winning. There's there's a distance to travel. We're not at the finish line, but they are starting to win, and it's showing. I I'm so grateful for that. I, Sally, I want to pop in another quote from your book because it is exactly what we what you were just sharing. It's about the cultural contradictions. And in you said, exposing the truth about cultural contradictions, about the price women pay for the so-called belonging that being a part of a culture implies, has been a hazardous voyage for the courageous wom- women who dare to risk the wrath of those who see themselves as the keepers of the cultural key. Culture flies like a banner of pride, but it also covers a host of misogynist acts that have oppressed women for centuries. So I'm so grateful that you are... I'm glad you read it. Yeah, I am so grateful that you are seeing and and hearing that really these women are still, as courageous as they are, are are really beginning to turn that key. Yeah, and they are. They are for sure. So I want you briefly to explain to our listeners what honor killing is, because I had never heard of it. When I was reading your book, I was like, holy moly. Well, in some cultures, men see their job is to protect the honor of the family. And they, they think it's a religious edict. It is not. They think it is. That the girls are going to bring shame to the family, and they must protect the family from this shame. I mean, they should look at themselves, for God's mm-hmm. sake. Who are they raping on the side? And if a girl um, has sex with a boy and she's not married to him, they will kill her. That's it. They just kill her. And then the coroner says it was an accident. But it's worse, not worse than that. As bad as that, Susan, is if a man decides he'd like to get rid of his wife and have a new wife, 
all he has to do in those villages is say, I saw her with another man, and they'll kill her. Oh, good It's honor killing. It is to protect the honor of the family. It is so dishonorable. It is so ridiculous. And yet, again, I mean, even in Canada and the U.S., this goes on, by the way. And for a long time, we said, well, you know what? It's none of our business. It's their culture. It is not their culture. It's a crime for which you should go to jail. Or, well, I was going to say, or be killed yourself, because really, <laughs> really, you know? Well, it should, we, have, we have laws, and the law says you can't do that. And they have laws in Jordan. The law says you can't do it. In some countries, you still, you could still have honor killing as, uh, is legal. But, but they ignore the law. Well, that's one of the other stories in your book is um, about these uh, female lawyers from Canada who went into another country and helped educate those people by by uh, creating a lawsuit on what was really in their written in their books, right? Of h- how right. the law really was supposed to be interpreted. But you know what? That that's a heck of a good story. I love telling that. And in fact, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book because I had such a spectacular story. The reason the Kenyan women lawyers contacted the Canadian women lawyers was because Canada was a country where the women sued the government for failing to protect them and won. You know what happened? This is a great story, great for America. Um, There was a case in Toronto known as the Balcony Rapist. So this guy was raping women by knowing where single women were living and entering their apartments through their balconies. So he became known as the Balcony Rapist. He raped a lot of women. The police knew his modus operandi. Instead of warning the women, they set a dragnet to catch the guy. In other words, they used the women oh, as, as bait. bait. So this guy raped a woman who's known forever as Jane Doe, and mm. and Jane Doe sued them, sued the police. She said, you had no business using me to mm. catch your guy, and she won. And that was a precedent-setting case that was seen all over the world. So the, the Kenyan lawyers said, how the heck did you do that? And the Canadian women said, this is how we did it. We used our constitution, because in our constitution, you're not allowed to do that. That woman had the right. The police, who of course were trying to do their job, but they were doing it the wrong way, mm-hmm. they used her as bait. And and so in Kenya, when they that was the 160 girls case I told you about oh, earlier. Yes, yes. What they did was they, I was sitting in this room with them. Let me tell you, watching lawyers work is not, it's, it's not the most interesting <laughs> thing you ever did. Because they have to be so particular. Everything has to be exactly right. So they were trying to decide how to go about the case. And they decided it would be a constitution challenge, as they did in Canada. But in Kenya, they had this brand new constitution. And that's what they did. And they won. Wow. It was really great. It, I had an op-ed in the New York Times that day about uh, the case. Well, the next day. Well, and that case, it was thrilling. And what's, what's awesome to me is that women are connecting around the world. And, and you know, it doesn't matter what country you in, you're in. You can support and help or ask for help from women in other countries, in other areas. And and that's just, that's a huge gift. That's probably part of what that tipping point is that you were feeling, Sally, when you were called to write this book, is that was the shift. It doesn't matter whether you're Malala Mm -hmm. or Seema Samar or Hillary Clinton or Gina Davis. You know what to say, and now they're saying it. Right. Yeah. I I want to speak just briefly... Uh, with you because we're we're running out of time 
I feel like we could talk another hour. I do, too. <laughs> but I know that there are men out there that might be listening that are thinking it's all about. I remember in the 70s, you know, my my dad, I love my dad dearly, but he's like, oh, you're a woman's liber now. I'm like, what does that mean? I'm just a woman. I'm sta- I, I'm just speaking my truth. I'm standing up for myself. And mm-hmm. I know that there are, might be men that are listening that are feeling maybe excluded from the conversation. Well, to the men who are listening, I throw you the torch. Oh. Grab that torch and light the way because we will not get to the finish line without you. And together, as my book proves over and over and over and over again, you improve the economy, you cut violence, you, you reduce poverty. There is so much evidence to prove this. And, and until the men and the women work together, and you know what, this is not about it, this is not about burning your bra, for God's sake. Those days, that's so silly. But what this is about is men and women at the table together. Look at when you want to end a war. It is natural that a man sees a war ending by the other guy surrendering. Right. I give up. Here's my gun. You know what? A woman doesn't see it that way. A woman sees it as, get your landmines out of my field. I have to plant the crop. My kids are hungry. Both ideas are excellent. And you bring both of those ideas to the table. And you're going to improve everything about the whole country. So that, I mean, the men have to play a role in this. We can't do it without men, of course. But women are no longer waiting for men to to instigate it. They're not waiting for government or the UN or anything else. The sisters are doing it for themselves. Yeah, you know, I think in America, at least some of the the circles I I run in, there is still that, um, and it's a cultural thing, it's become, I guess, of the the women's lib movement, and therefore you're a radical as opposed to, no, I am a human rights activist. Yeah. And and people, I think, forget that. And you can't back down because someone calls your name. No, no. So, Sally, I want to end with one more quote uh, from your book, Uprising. And in it, you say, most women game changers are best known in their own villages or to the women and girls they serve. They are valiant and determined. They bide their time watching for opportunities that will improve the status of women. They're protective and brave, tenacious and daring. In other words, they are not saints, but warriors. And like women, we all know they are people we can emulate. Their collective effort is what has brought women to the tipping point that we're heading towards today. And I want to say, yay! <laughs> Sally Armstrong, thank you so much for joining me today. The book is called Uprising. I inv- I really highly recommend this book. It should be something that you should keep on your bookshelf. And if you are a young woman, you should be reading it and finding out all the information that Sally has stockpiled in it for you. So Sally, thank you again. Thank you. And you can get the book at Amazon.com or any bookstore. Just tell them if they don't have one, order one. They've all got it. Awesome. And so I'm just going to end with, and so it is, namaste. Well, that wraps up our chat for today. Thanks for joining me. And if you want to learn more, go to susanburrell.com. You can contact me through the website. There's blogs for you to read. There are videos to watch. And remember, I am an intuitive healer and spiritual guide at the crossroads of life. And I would be more than honored to help you on your journey to live an empowered life. And so it is. Namaste. Namaste.